you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success Hear ye, hear ye. Come on, come on. You're listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. We got a couple extra bodies around the table, eh, bro? What do we got, Joel? I don't know. You're, they're your invited guests. <laughs> they're my <laughs> guests. <laughs> I know. You do the honors. I know. Uh, so I want to welcome the hosts, or uh, yeah, the hosts from uh, Teachers Like Us podcast, Andre and Alyssa. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Hey, hey. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem, no problem. <laughs> um, you know, uh, again, we're going to definitely clarify this whole strike thing, and and you guys are, you know, of course, better suited than us to explain what, what's going on. But first, uh, can you let, like, the listeners know what you guys do and, and, and what your podcast is about? Okay, so we are the co-hosts of a podcast named Teachers Like Us, and it tackles the experiences of racialized teachers and kind of the experience that our racialized students are going through. So we try our best to kind of speak through just, I guess, everyday topics, but from our perspective, because we are the teachers that are kind of missing from the narrative traditionally. And then we try and go into ways that we can help enlighten other teachers of how to treat their marginalized students essentially or to hopefully gain from our experiences and how we deal with um those same marginalized students and how long have you guys been doing the podcast Ooh, it's recent so our first episode launched uh january 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 yeah. 8th uh 2020 so we're just a couple of weeks in really or a month in okay and how's the feedback um been like do your peers your teacher peers listen to it or anything yeah a couple of teachers in the building listen i have a lot of friends that come up to me i even had one i was at a birthday party on saturday and had somebody come up to me and say hey is that l boogie because my daughter was there and i was like how do you know her nickname and he was telling me like i listened to the podcast i was like oh okay wow okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so i don't know if this is a weird question but um the students listen to it Funny enough, some of them do. So um, I guess the ones that we are closest with have caught on. And like our setup is on our desk, right? Or on my desk in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So they constantly come in and what's this? And we say we're doing a podcast. They've asked us what it's called. We kind of have shied away from it. But somehow they're super sleuths. And um, yeah, a couple of them listen. Their parents listen. Mm So, You know, with your podcast, I kind of. Uh, I'm a bit of a loser, so I listened to everything on two times speed. So I like crushed all of your episodes yesterday. <laughs> um, and I, you know, not even that long. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's just a habit, right? Yeah. Like, but anyways, I mean, it means I could. I basically got through everything in an hour. That's oh, awesome. Oh wow. Okay. Right. Instead of two. <laughs> um, so yeah, for the listener, you guys have six episodes released so far. I think. Yes. Yep. Um, is there any particular episode you guys have liked the best? Uh, or or you enjoyed making or you know just the conversation itself being the most interesting to you anything along those lines or or maybe one that you're about to release what was our second episode see i'm awful with the episode title names (laughs) building authentic relationships with yeah Yeah, that's the best one. that was the best one only because it somehow just flowed like i Mm. do a lot of the editing for our podcast and i'm the like 
switcheroo of things. So I'm like, oh, I don't like this order. And I'll switch the order of the way we're speaking. But that one, we just kind of set up the mic. We went for it mm. and it kind of went up the way it was recorded. Mm. Yeah. What what I, um, you know, the listeners will actually hear what I'm about to reference the week after with our, our final episode. But Darnell and I were talking about um, coaching and and how in essence, kind of going through struggle with people and kind of showing you, showing them you have their back. I thought resonated a lot with what you were saying in that episode where, okay. you know, those, those authentic relationships require almost substance in terms of you went through something or you experienced something, or in essence, you're showing the students you have their back. For sure. Absolutely. Um, as opposed to just, you know, how many teachers they just, you know, you never know them as a student. I mean, sure. I'm sure you guys can remember like, just going through a class where you mm -hmm. never even had a conversation with your teacher almost. So. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of the premise behind teachers like us. Um, everything we talk about is about the relationships that we've built with our students. So the only way we can speak to all of these things is because we've built those authentic relationships. And so even though the topics are different, the kind of underlying theme is that if you don't know your students, there's no way that you can build on anything mm -hmm. from there. Mm-hmm. That's literally what we push in every episode. You hear it come up all the time, the fact that you need to be talking to your students. You mm -hmm. need to be interacting with them. You need to ask them, hey, what's going on in your actual personal life? Mm -hmm. And let me maybe use my lessons to help bring out some things that are going on in your life so that you're actually engaged and actually interested in what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the, the value piece of that, that maybe without getting into... Um, some of the social issues that we talk about today, I think, um, you know, whether somebody agrees or disagrees with, you know, I'll throw some buzzwords like, you know, black, uh, I was going to say white privilege. I almost said black privilege because that's what Darnell uses it on one of our podcasts. <laughs> but, um, you know, white privilege or different things along those lines. I think we may uh, have room for a conversation around those things. But what we would agree with is, or, and I think both sides, when I say we, both sides would agree the solutions within the classroom is um, teaching the students in a way that they can understand. Mm -hmm. And, and we so call that, that culturally responsive teaching. So yeah, those are our buzzwords when and, we talk about things. And, like that. and that's where, like, I would say I might have a, I might be I might want to challenge that word just because I think what the, the idea of like culturally responsive. Because to some extent, there, I, I would say, are we not bringing in a bit of cultural division it, within the term? But anyways, without going down that road, where, <laughs> what I was saying is I would resonate with what that actually looks like, right? So the idea of knowing your students, knowing how they learn, knowing their nuance such that if you say, you know, you talk about, I know at one point you guys talked about, you know, I think it was you guys talking about the names kind of changing within problems from being like, you yeah. know, John and, and so mm -hmm. like stereotypical European sort of names to things that are more um, um, ethnically diverse. Mm -hmm. And and I would say to some extent, that's a really simple, almost, I want to say meaningless example. Yeah, that's but it like does, literally what I said in the podcast. It, like, but it, it doesn't mean anything. It does demonstrate <laughs> the principle of like, I don't want to speak to my student in a way that they're just going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if you start giving a skateboarding problem solving scenario with none of your kids have ever skateboarded, like you're just not able to communicate. Right. And so I think that's where so much of what I've appreciated from what you guys have in your, in your content is, is really about understanding the students. 
whether or not they're you know one demographic or another like that i would almost argue that becomes irrelevant it's just about those 30 kids or whatever the number is mm -hmm. and and getting to know them as individuals to know hey i'm gonna have to teach a certain lesson a certain way but these four kids i'm gonna have to do x y and z as well so that they don't get left behind for sure yeah and i think part of understanding when we talk about culturally responsive because i think the first thing you did you were like "Ooh, culture but then you went right to kind of ethnicity right like your link to culture was ethnicity mm -hmm. in terms of not like when we're thinking about um restricting students or like kind of separating cultural separation the culture means like do you like dance do you like like all of those things make up culture as well. So when we're being culturally responsive, it's not just being ethnically um, responsive. It's understanding that, yes, these kids like uh, badminton and basketball versus skateboarding. It's that idea that we know more about the students than just their names. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't intend to sound like I was going <laughs> at Because I, I think you actually raise a good point that like, but that's where, you know, some of the, the challenge that I have, and this is like going deep into the, I want to say theology of it, but, but, um, how much of the labels like culturally responsive potentially problematize things that shouldn't be problematized. And that's where I start to go. Like, I mean, again, without going down the idea of like <laughs> white privilege, it's like, are we problematizing whiteness when in reality, these are privileges we want everybody to have. Mm -hmm. And so do and, and problematize is actually a, a really important word because if you know the underlying theology of critical race theory, intersectionality, there's an intentionality with problematizing things. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, you know, I start to go like, wait, are we problematizing something that becomes the new other, if you want to use those terms. And so as opposed to promoting towards common good, we're, we're creating a different bad that we're trying to avoid. I feel like that's your privilege speaking in that you're thinking about, ah, if we do this, then we get othered or another group gets othered. Whereas if you kind of look at things historically, that's not, that's not going to happen, right? Like Eurocentric standards are standard. And even with a rise of all of the quote unquote others, you're not going to see a place where whiteness is othered. Whiteness is still always the standard. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind when we're I don't think at whiteness like is a thing. Like I don't resonate with a cultural being white. Like no one I know that is white identifies as white. That's your privilege speaking. No, it's yeah. not. See, because <laughs> I, I wanted to go down this road a bit because I think it's a good conversation. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Um, and because and I think that white privilege, if it's a, a proper principle, applies universally. Say, yeah. we'll say that again. If yeah. it's a proper principle, it applies universally. Does it apply in Hong Kong? Is there white privilege in Hong Kong? Yes. Absolutely. Is, yes. We just no, talked I, about I this know. on well, the just, last um, podcast. We mm -hmm. talked about shadism. Okay. And but, that, but that's shade. I, I, I love that you went there because I would say, is that if you took away white people would that still exist i don't know and i don't think we can't like i'm thinking within because i'm assuming you're talking about shadism within the black community is that well all we did okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. but we touched on the fact that even in countries like 
um, Japan and Korea and Hong Kong, skin lightening is a thing. Like, mm-hmm. and it's to be closer to whiteness because whiteness holds power. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. You can argue semantics all day long about like if white people didn't exist, you do. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> but, but, but my question, though, like, is that? And this is a, a a question I know we can't necessarily answer, but but what you know what draws us towards lighter there's a there's a fair point that like okay this represents power and you know for some people sure i I would say like power is king for a lot some people but a lot of people power is not what they strive for but power doesn't necessarily mean power over in terms of dominating things power is is holding cultural capital right in the Mm -hmm. fact that when i look at the tv nine times out of 10, who am I seeing? Who is standard? Now that they're trying to introduce um, kind of more diversity into characters, you will still see a lot of mixed couples. So they're bringing in black people, but again, there's always a white person there. And then their kid is this light skinned, curly haired, almost blonde. In the bank commercials. (laughs) (laughs) These are things that we notice and that you may not because you don't have to. And it's not that white privilege and this idea means that, again, you have all of these things given to you in life. It just means that your race is not the thing impacting all of those struggles. Yeah, well, and, and I think, you know, that statement is also why I have the problem with the term white privilege, because mm-hmm. it points the finger in the wrong direction. Like th- what you just said was was actually almost nothing to do with whiteness. It's, you know, how some people treat certain races or so. Again, you know, my thought is like the problem we as a society have is the underprivileged or those that aren't given, let's say, um, equal opportunity because, you know, someone's judging them based on race or preconceptions that people aren't thinking about. So that's where I'm, I, I would say, like so much of that conversation I can resonate with while I take issue with the word because I'm like, are we not pointing in the wrong direction? Like, don't we want like. And, and it's not so much that I'm like, as you started with, it's not so much that I'm worried that the white people are going to become the other. No, it's like, are we trying to demonize the person who's a, who has that privilege? And that's the concern because I want everybody to have those privileges. I don't want to pull down the person who has the privilege. So like in the context of you guys, like being in the classroom, <laughs> I know we kind of, <laughs> this could go on. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, no, I'm just saying that, no, so it still ties in, but, um, to what Joel was saying and what you were saying, just, I'm curious, like, how does that play out in the classroom? Um, how, how do the white students, uh, are, do the, are the white students aware of, of the, um, what's the term of, um, white privilege? The disparities between between whiteness and them absolutely but i was yeah i was gonna say going back to your point of us we are not necessarily trying to demonize white people right we're um more putting them on awareness of hey i know it's and it's something that i say a lot of the time we know it's not your fault Mm-hmm. We know that you didn't own slaves. <laughs> we get like, yeah, yeah. Like, but we need to put you in a situation. We need to make sure that, especially for the kids that are in our classroom, that especially in classrooms in Peel where the white students aren't there all mm-hmm. that much. So now when we have these um, 
Sorry, Andre, what do you mean by they're not there? So, uh, perfect example, I teach two classes, two grade seven classes. I have zero white students in my class. Yep, uh, I teach eight classes, and I want to say I have maybe five or six out of that entire eight. And that just has to do with, I guess, our demographic of Peel, like yeah, where, where you're located, Peel, where we're located right? in Peel. Because if you go to like South Mississauga, mm -hmm. you're gonna find a different demographic for sure. If you're going to Port Credit, are you from Port Credit? <laughs> One Park. Oh, buddy. LP it all makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, not really. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Keep talking. Keep talking. Sorry, I didn't realize that that was the um, the demographics. It's yeah. So cool. um, that's why when you said like the word demonized, that's the, some, the thing that we can't do is because now in the classroom there might be only one yeah, two yeah. in in the class so now when i bring up these topics i have to make everybody else not just stare at that one student yeah. and say oh you're the reason why well, but this <laughs> is why this is why i'm actually cr uh, critical of the term mm -hmm. because it my my point is not that you're doing it i'm saying the term it it does that and that's why i brought it back to that idea of critical race theory and the intentionalities of problematizing things and so argue like i would make the challenge is that not the inherent intention such that now it's making your job harder to be like okay here's this thing white privilege but don't hate the white people like the fact that you have to start that way to me actually symbolizes what i'm trying to say that the term itself has problems that transcend what we're actually trying to address i get that but then i also make my students aware that it is not um, our jobs as marginalized or their jobs as marginalized people to make white people feel comfortable about a term that's making them uncomfortable. It's okay to well, but I'm not sit in your discomfort. I, but I'm, I'm like, but I would say, honestly, that makes no difference because I'm not discomforted by the word. Like it doesn't bother but, uh, me. But many mm. people are. You yeah. may not yeah. be, but the term white privilege makes people so squirmy. Like we have staff meetings and we talk about a lot of these things and we asked as our, our equity committee when we were allowed to do things like that, we sent out a message saying, um, what are some things you'd like to talk about? What are some things that make you uncomfortable? The thing that made most people uncomfortable was the idea of white privilege and saying the word white privilege. Well, and, that, and, and I, I would argue it's going back to what I'm saying because the term inherently demonizes whiteness. It, it, it essentially points to the evil in terms of the way the word has been utilized the way the word has been brought forward. And so that's where I say, I take issue with the term, not what the term is trying to point out. And I say, sit mm. in that discomfort. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, Andre. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> can you like further unpack? Because uh, I found it very fascinating that, well, both of you, that your classes don't have predominantly white people because that was my experience back when I was in school. So mm -hmm. when you said that, I was like, oh, shoot. So so how do you communicate those, that, that though, um, the ideas of, um, social justice or uh, white privilege when you don't have whites in the in, in the class or even if you have like a couple few and you're still trying to accommodate them like how, how do you do that um i'd say one way is now that we're in february and we're looking at black histories and that's where the topic comes up of okay you had these oppressed people and look at the people who did it to them and that might be a lot of people's focus you look at slavery and you say okay this um these Eurocentric people came, took people from their homes, brought them to different lands and said, hey, you are going to work the field. You are going to work and build our country for us and be our 
slaves and we are going to own you and do whatever we want with you. So as much as much as that is a heavy topic to bring up, especially to bring well, up, yo, it's been a heavy topic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a heavy topic, but it's, yeah. you're bringing it up in my classroom now. Yeah, I'm bringing yeah, that yeah, up with yeah. no white students in my classroom, yeah. and then I'll have my marginalized students or my black students, my um, Indian students, Guyanese students walk out the classroom, and then you can get that okay. First white person I see is like, oh, this is your fault. Yeah, yeah you're the reason why we are this way and it's to now take that step back and say okay it's not his fault like the person in the hallway it's the power structure the power dynamic that's been set up in society that we are looking at and that might Uh be the thing that is wrong and it's just for us to get into a place where we are accepting of the fact that hey what has happened is wrong and now how do we move forward? And the only way that we can move forward is to make all the people that are on the top be aware that, hey, you're on you're on top, but you're on top for some really wrong reasons. And have them sit in that and say, okay, now how can I be an ally for the people that are under me? Yeah, and that's, that's, that was the next question I was going to ask. So, like, for, for both of you, Alyssa and Audrey, like, do you find, like, the white students are um, a lot more down to be allies, a lot more woke and em- embracing um, the idea of white privilege than kind of like the, their older white counterparts, the teachers? I would say so. Um, and I think the way that we kind of bring them in, we always have this idea of bringing students safely in and safely out of conversations. Mm-hmm. So it's never dropping these bombs and kind of leaving them kind of like, mm-hmm. hey, think about that, mic drop, and I'm out. <laughs> um, we definitely... Start of the class as opposed yeah. to end of the class. Yeah, get like, them out. Right? <laughs> we scaffold everything. We really bring it down to a level where we're not just talking about, again, whiteness itself. We're talking about imbalances of power we're looking at prejudice over time Um, we're looking at how we can make change so again i think for both of us the underlying message is always well then how do we make change Mm -hmm. so yes this exists and i'm not going to shy away from saying who did this and what the implications are but then how yeah how do we move forward but the other thing that i wanted to add is that i don't look at things um in kind of this past tense like this happened this is still happening. happening yeah. So how do we navigate that? And how do we ensure that we are all kind of helping each other rise? So uh, speaking, uh, speaking of helping each other rise. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was going to say, you know, that, that ties into, you know, our, we did an episode on uh, the report. We rise together. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know if you guys had a chance to listen to it, but you know, one of the, the, you know, I'll say Darnell's biggest point, if I remember correctly, was um, his kind of concern or, or focus that we need to empower the individual to go, you know, as much as you might have roadblocks or barriers, like it comes down to you at the end of the day, right? You can uh, expound your point because I'm probably. Yeah, no, no, it was close. But um, so we, we went through the report that was episode 48. We rise together and um, we the issue was. Uh, on the stats, while I have it here, um, where is it? We rise. Okay, yeah. So we rise together, and so uh, the thing that stuck out about the report was uh, who was doing well, and it and it has a stat that says that so there's forty eight percent engaged successful students, and then thirty six disengaged, and then sixteen percent mixed. 
So I'm not the math guy. You're the math guy, but <laughs> it works out. I think you said it was 50% that are um, engaged and the other 50 weren't. And so, again, like my heart was I was the black kid who didn't do well in school <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> this is funny. But um, just looking at it, so my heart definitely goes out to the, the, the male students um, in this report because I was once there. Um, and so the thing that stuck out to me was looking at my experience. And part of the reason why I struggled was because of my home situation. And so what I was saying was that um, I wish the report covered um, what was happening at home. Because for me, um, philosophically, I believe that education starts at home and not school and ends in the home and not school, uh, you know, teachers can only do so much. And because even like the limits that's put on teachers today, um, they can't do as much as the teachers used to do for me back when I was in school where you they can. No rulers sure. across the hand. Yeah. Well, no, not just that, but, but even, but even being able to do like remedial um, and teachers to spend more time with me. But at the end of the day, I, I thought it was very important to um, when looking at the success of students is still, mom and dad still play a role in, in making a home that's helpful for learning. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, now I'm remember what we really talked about or what, you know, with the 50%, there was, I would, we were kind of critical of the study saying like, okay, well, what's different about the 50% who are succeeding? What, what are, what are the successful students? Like, why are they succeeding? If they're both, if all the students are, in, you know, facing the same difficulties, roughly speaking, uh, especially if we're going to, you know, let's say chalk some of it up to race and, and racism and, and the difficulties there. Yeah. Sorry, Joel. And I also add that. Yeah. Cause part of it was like, I wasn't saying that there wasn't racism or that, um, teachers, there aren't teachers that are mistreating black students. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. No, but in that context, what are the successful, why are the successful students successful? The, the study almost focused on kind of identifying the experience, uh, you know, with regards to good and bad and un disengaged and not engaged. Without kind of saying, okay, well, the good students, here's what's different about them compared to the students who are not engaged. I think your stronger students, um, instead of your good versus bad students, yeah. your stronger <laughs> students, this is a teacher in me, um, are going to be successful regardless, right? These are your students who are going to buy into the system, sure. meaning whatever material is presented in front of them, whether Eurocentric, whether... Um, very standardized will succeed because it's just kind of innate in who they are. They're intrinsically motivated and they want to kind of succeed. Not that your others don't, but when you have students who are disengaged, it is oftentimes, and again, I go back to being culturally responsive, that the material and the ways that they're learning. So we talked about curriculum development and, um, kind of implementation in one of our episodes, it's that idea that they're not being hooked. So it's not that this gap kind of exists on a spectrum. You have kids who are doing really well and you have kids who are doing really poorly. So there's not even really this group in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, like while our, our stronger students are succeeding, they're going to, they're going to ex like continue to exceed expectations regardless, but your students who are struggling are the ones that need the help. And that's why the focus is on how do we improve so that all of our students. Well, and, that, and I think that's where it comes back to Darnell's point that to some extent, what you've just said pre presumes, right? Like their characters, 
Whereas I would go to like the nature versus nurture and Darnell's point of like how much does home life even play a factor with the fact that they're engaged or not, which mm-hmm. then leads to them being a stronger student. Whether it's, as you said, some lesson plans are more standardized, some are more, you know, abstract, let's call it. And, and so some students engage and some don't. And so Darnell's question of like, well, what's different about those students? Like it could just come chalk up to, you know, skill set versus, yeah. you know, one of the things yeah. that I know for me or, or that I've learned recently is this idea of like fast processor versus slow processor. So you might have some students who I use math as an example, because it applies to me. It's like, I used to be able to watch the teacher halfway through the problem. I start answering it myself on the side. Okay. You know, and, and, and that's just because I could process. That's very things. geeky of you, but, go ahead. <laughs> but like I could process things on the fly in a way that, you know, that's just a skill that I had. And so, you know, that makes me more engaged because, I know what's going. I can I can know what's going on as opposed to someone who let's say is a lot slower processor has to copy the entire thing down and then study it later yeah, to go get back it home and study right. It. And so I can I can see how there's scenarios where inherent skill plays a a, a role in how engaged they are. Um, but I think there's an aspect of let's just use the term discipline where you're like okay I'm in school I need to focus this is my re- job my responsibility and so I need and and I think that comes from the home life. It, it's not an inherent skill because I know for me, I got to, I got to work to be disciplined. I don't yeah. know about you. Um, I was going to say um, for some students, yes, it could be the home life. It could be like things are happening at home that are just distracting them from coming to school. But there's a lot of students even now in middle school that have checked out the, they come to school. They don't see themselves in school. They don't see themselves in the work that they're doing. They don't see themselves in the books that they're reading. Mm-hmm. The the uh, material that we go through, it doesn't portray anything to them. So now you have these kids that are solely coming to school to interact with their friends, solely coming to school because of sports. They're so girls <laughs> solely coming to school for you guys girls. Showed up the kicks. Showed up the kicks. Right? Yeah. That's that is their that is now their motivation, and now mm-hmm. they're going to use that motivation just to get them through the next what six seven four years whatever yeah, it is yeah. right yeah. so um in talking of that point of like oh, what was i going to say there's something um that you mentioned along the lines of okay like how do we judge these students that are doing well or why no, or no, no hold on hold on wait sorry just make sure yeah. that, that that we're in the right context so um the re the we the we rise together the sample size was 87 students so it was 87 black males Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. so the context just to give context to the listener that um the percentages were these are all black males so there was the 48 percent are black males that are doing well and then the other half are are those who aren't doing well and then the other 16 was um yeah i I mean this is where we or at least me i'm like you know i took stats as like electives in university because i'm a math <laughs> so like i look at that study and go okay where's your control group right like um you know why not have a similar number of black females why not have you know same school let's call it the control group like how do they compare with that that level of engagement because until you know the the tr- let's call it true dispersion how is like you know if if the level of engagement for let's say non-black not just go white like non-black is 75 25 okay that's a telling factor but if it's also 50 50 well then some of your recommendations aren't even relevant they're actually in in what i mean by not relevant they're not relevant because they need to apply to everybody they don't need to just apply to to that subsection of school students i think for this 
um, study as a whole, I think the focus was they were trying to just look at these black kids because they noticed that the problem is was there. So when when they looked at their uh, peel stats to say yeah. like okay which kids are dropping out which kids aren't doing well yeah and i would like to point out that this yes while the we rise has a small sample it's based off of larger studies that were done in the tdsb so the mm-hmm. toronto district school board um it's based off of the stephen lewis report that was actually written in 1992 so the funny thing is is if you read that report if you pull up that report at any time it sounds like it was written today. Like that's how, yes, it was written in 1992. I go through that and I'm like, yep, those are students right now. And so it's based on research as well. So for your statisticians and your statisticians, what is the word? I can't even say whatever. I don't do math. That works. Um, For all of your research-based people, go look at the studies that have gone before and kind of go in, um, that are in line with them. So there was a study on black teachers because part of the We Rise Together report is talking about like the need for representation in terms of the teaching bodies in the classroom. And there is a teacher diversity gap. So that's real. And and so this is where I was saying like good statistics are so fundamental to this because the idea of a control group. Okay, so how does that, how does that 87? Okay, one, 87 is a small enough sample that, you know, some of the things I'm challenging, you would need to increase the sample size. But, okay, for the students who have uh, the same race teacher, does that change? If the answer is no, the question just is why. It doesn't mean that that tells me the answer is, oh, race of your teachers is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It would just say like, okay, well, why did it not matter? Oh, maybe it's because this is the first out of six years that they had a teacher of the same race. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like, again, I'm just throwing questions out there with a potential solution that doesn't hold it in one direction or the other. But the point being is if you're trying to take a sample of 87 students to then make recommendations on how to rectify, my challenge is I need to know why they're different. Not just the outcomes are different. Like there's so many input factors that result in those outcomes. And I think the part that you guys missed that we, I guess were included in as part of our, maybe not training, but like our staff meetings and things like that, they created a video. They interviewed these students. They talked about Mm -hmm. their experiences Mm -hmm. and the things that were happening to them in school. And it wasn't just the ones who weren't doing well. Mm -hmm. The ones who were really successful were speaking about things like, yes, I'm successful, but in spite of. So Mm -hmm. again, I am not necessarily a numbers and facts kind of girl. I'm an emotions based Mm -hmm. person and I'm an experiential Um, person. So when I hear my students, and again, we have more experience because we're dealing with these kids day to day, we get to hear those sound bites. We're hearing those stories of discrimination. We're hearing those inequities in practice. Like as black teachers, we're watching it happen. So Mm -hmm. I don't need a sample group in this to tell me what I've experienced. You do. No, but I'm not (laughs) saying about experience. I'm talking about change, Mm. right? I'm talking about the prospective not the retrospective. The retrospective, of course, like what you're saying, what they're experiencing, you know, I, I would say there's an a, there is an aspect of, you know, how often do we misinterpret other people, right? Like I've said this on the podcast recently, the, the worst thing you can do is interpret someone else's behavior through your lens, meaning why were they, they're motivated because if I did that, I would have done it for this reason, right? And so there's an aspect of, you know, experience is biased because you're interpreting someone else's behavior as if you did it most of the time you almost have to train yourself not to do that to try to put yourself in their person's shoes so that's one aspect where i would say yeah experience 
matters, but it can also be dramatically false because of your misconceptions. So, so then my question for you guys is, what is it that you would like to see out of the We Rise report that would make you feel comfortable in trusting, I guess, what it's putting forth? Or what are the shortfalls and limitations that you are seeing from an outsider's perspective? Yeah, for um, sure. We, um, just to add to that, it's um, the other side that might be missing here is because, again, and <clears throat> sorry, probably why we're here today is that we're giving you that inside look into mm-hmm. the school, right? So yeah. for this document, you guys being the public saw it as a document and now you're addressing and picking apart and pulling at the minute things or the grander things that are inside of the document. Whereas uh-huh. we are the teachers who now have to take the document and work the document into our lessons, work the document into our um, professional development that we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I'm, well, I'm one day I'll be with you guys. So <laughs> hopefully Lord willing. So, so I'm in the process of, you know, becoming a teacher and, yeah. and teacher's cause. So I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I always make jokes on the podcast like, yo, man, I hope, you know, when I go for my interview process, these guys aren't pulling up my podcast and listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the comments that I made. So, yeah, um, one day, Lord willing, I hope to be a teacher and um, be amongst you guys. Um, and again, so that's why when I'm reading this, I'm like, OK, so when I get into the field, this is what I'm probably going to be dealing with. Uh, and now, again, like I said before, as a black male who, who's gone through the system, and struggled, struggled through the system. Uh, my my whole expectation was like, okay, um, I have a heart for these kids because I was once there. Mm-hmm. And so my, I guess part of it is for me, I can only talk about my experience and why I was doing bad. And I was doing bad because my home situation was not helpful. Mm-hmm. As much as my mom and dad loved me um, and they tried their best, um, they weren't equipped um, to help me become a better student. Um, but then again, you know, I had peer, I had other uh, black friends who did really well in school. And it was clear because, you know, they, you know, their situation was different than mine. Um, but again, like I'm not a numbers guy, um, but I have been studying economics and really looking at um, understanding, you know, why things happen. And so like for, so it's very concerning when you're seeing, you know, you know, black students disgruntled. And my question was just more so um, what are some solutions and what are we comparing it to and really pushing the envelope of things that might have been overlooked, like the kids who are doing well. And besides their innate ability to want to do well, you know, how was how was, you know, mom being helpful? How was dad being helpful? Because, again, when you look at this report and we haven't even talked about it yet. Um, and really do we, but like, this isn't just a black problem, but this is a black male problem, mm-hmm. not a black yeah. female. Yeah. That's the focus. Cause if it's a black female problem, then we give female solutions for females. Men and women are not the same. Like boys are different, right? Cause boys do crazy stuff. <laughs> we're not, <laughs> I was you like, know, do I touch it? I'm not going to, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we're all, we're, we're boys are different. Girls are different. And so I was just, I was really looking for a male specific solution. Um, and so when I don't see uh, proper solutions, it just kind of gets me mad where I'm like, okay, like I, I really want to help these kids. I really want to see these boys do well. So I didn't really see that in the report, but I think too, that's, that comes with experience. Mm-hmm. So again, this report that I'm looking at right now 
and I'm looking at like kind of our our one pager fact yeah. sheet, the what, why, what's happening. Of what? Sorry, what was it? We uh, the We Rise Together. Okay, okay, so yeah. if you go to weriseTogether.ca, uh-huh. it has all of the reports there, and it has like one pages that kind of give you an idea of of what this is and why um, it was put forth. And while the recommendations don't sound very specific. You have to understand that as schools, we are doing um, PD sessions where we are tackling this document, unpacking it, coming up with solutions, coming up with actual tangible things that are going to happen in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, two of my colleagues and I did this last year for a PD session, and we unpacked everything from the research that preceded this document to the document itself mm-hmm. to what you could bring into the classroom. So. This document is just like any other document. Like if you've looked at a curriculum document, you know that thing is like, do this, like teach <laughs> measurement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, okay, how? sure. How? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't tell you I how. I talking about that on one of the podcasts. They're like, it was so, like, it's such a simple measurement sort of yes. directive. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was saying. Like this document, as much as you guys are the public and are maybe even scrutinizing the document, the document is made for us mm-hmm. to unpack, just like the curriculum document is made for It's It's there for you to read and say, okay, like the curriculum, read it, and you'll say, okay, by the end of grade six, my son should know this in measurement. I now have to take that and say, okay, what am I going to teach? So, so I, I would say, you know, for me, kind of being more stats-oriented, right, it, there's this idea uh, within statistics called cause and effect. But yeah. then also correlation doesn't equal causation. And so that's where, to me, I go to control groups. I go to those ideas because all what I would say, for the most part, the study has laid out dispersity, dispersity and outcome without trying to delimitate factors that cause those outcomes. And so that's where, OK, yeah, we want to we want to produce uh, solutions to the to the bad outcomes. But if I don't have a really thorough understanding of the cause, I don't. You're just throwing dirt at the wall and hoping it sticks. Okay, and then to that I would say, as a black woman and someone who has has experienced a ton of different things in school, I look at this document, and I think to myself, thank goodness for this document, even though to you guys it doesn't look like much. But this well, we is said stuff, it was a good starting point. Yeah, was, but this is so. stuff that we have needed for some time. And truthfully, I don't necessarily care how it came to be that they came to the conclusion that these things needed to happen because they did need to happen. Like, so I'm not disagreeing. Can I just read this? Yeah, <laughs> I just want to say I'm not. We're not disagreeing that these things necessarily need to be addressed. Yeah, that's that's not our place of disagreement. So, like, our, when we did the whole episode on that, we were like. This is a great identifier of issues and and showing just like problems that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So that's where we went. Okay, that's great. But now the prospective actions is where we took issue because again, I go back to cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So, but you need more. But my thing is, is that the the average person listening to this is going to hear this is not enough, right? Like I need more, and the reason like they didn't do enough research thus it's invalid that's not what you said but i fear that the average person listening to this is going to be like yeah you're right they only sampled 87 students so it can't it's be not valid. good enough yeah, yeah it's not and i don't want people like i want people to understand that like this document is saying deliver anti-black racism and bias awareness professional development it is telling boards to have training for their staff like 
so that way they understand what's happening in the lives of others. And yes, that's not, you know, just for those black males, but it's necessary. Like, and so yes, 87 students doesn't sound like a lot, but if it got me this, I'm okay with that. So I, and I would say, do, do we have a cause and effect relationship in the document that demonstrates it's racism? Sorry, what do you mean by that? You lost me. So going back to, to cause and effect, right? We know that there's an unequal outcome based on race. Do we know race is the, the factor or do we, is there a common cause, right? Meaning if, and I'll use some hyperbole to make my point, right? If, if you have, you know, all the black students you sampled were of single parent homes, as opposed to the rest of the population is, you know, two parent homes, there's a potential that the common cause oh, okay. is single parentness, right? It's just a dispersity in single parentness, both in the black community and in the outcome of, of yeah. grades. Yeah, but even then, but even then, I, you know, not all, not all black homes are single. No, no, I, that's yeah. why I said I used hyperbole. I'm and trying to use extreme examples. Yeah, yeah, but, and, but, and, yeah, but no, that's but, like, when you give your example, sometimes <laughs> I get lost, man. So, yeah. But at the same time, you just heard Darnell say from his personal experience that he had his mother and his father at home, at home and, and school still sucked for him, right? So, mm -hmm. um, well, I, I, but my point, though, is like, do we have something to demonstrate racism is the cause or have we presumed it because there's racial disparity? Okay. So one of the things in the report says uh, under the why of why this report kind of came to be unchallenged name calling by peers, including the use of the N word, meaning students have been called the N word at school and nobody stopped it. So teachers heard it, but didn't know how to address it and stop the behavior. Um, so that's where I would say like the document is great at saying, okay, this is something that needs to stop. But I would also say, does it, the document doesn't necessarily demonstrate that that leads to the unequal outcome. I get what you're saying. Like, I totally understand that you need proof. Well, it's not so much that I need proof. It's this idea of like, we're, if we're going to spend, let's say 10 million, I know that's not the budget, but like if we're <laughs> going to spend $10 million to implement all of these things. And the goal is to change outcomes in grades. But all it, all it does is not my, is a, mm -hmm. you know, but all it does is, or all it does is not what I want to say. What it does is change the culture of the school, which is great. But if the objective was to improve grades and it doesn't do that, yeah. then, uh, then but that you is know, not, yeah, but it's, the, it's the experience. Yeah. Cause yeah. part of it is, uh, it's not read the, read the report. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why I was saying like, it's, it's that that's part where I can agree. Like these things need to stop. The experiences need to improve. But, but for me, this all orientated out of unequal outcome in grades. But yeah, well, it's, okay. <laughs> grades are based on like more than, and again, this is what you don't see being out of the classroom. I feel like this is why I get frustrated because this is the public saying you, if you just did this, this would happen, or I need to see this in order for this to happen. Mm -hmm. But we live in an experiential society in an experiential era of schooling where I, my job is yes, to teach little whoever one plus one equals two, but it is to make that student love being at school enough to continue coming and to continue learning regardless of mm -hmm. what's happening. Or even so to that's, remember what they've learned. Yeah, right? so what it is, it says yeah. we rise together is an, an intervention plan and comprehensive response to the educational experiences of black students in the peel board. It says nothing 
about improving their grades. We just want them to love school enough mm -hmm. to want to be there because exactly. that's what we were mm -hmm. finding that students did not even want to come to school anymore. Mm -hmm. So yes, from the outside, we want to see grades improvement. Like that's from a parent, a parental and a societal standpoint because mm -hmm. meritocracy is king, right? Mm -hmm. Like we want to see grades equal success. Mm -hmm. But for me as a teacher, and this has always been kind of my background, is that a love of learning, Yeah, that's it for me. Like, So I that's where I, I'll go back to your show for one minute, total mm. sidebar. But like, I really appreciated, you know, within your podcast, there's an aspect of teaching people to learn or, or mm. teaching people how to learn. Right. Absolutely. So there's two things that that I thought that that comments that you guys made that resonated with, with me. One was kind of you made the, something like we use the term. I don't know. Let's go find out. Yeah. Right. And so demonstrating how to find out, you know, how to learn for yourself and how to teach yourself um, is something that I think for the most part has been absent from our school system. Um, and the second was um, the comment. I don't remember who said it, but but recognizing there's a need to change the role of school from teaching people to be employees, to be employers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I would change employer to entrepreneur. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, but, okay, well, <laughs> come on. Yeah, well, well that, that's the libertarian side of Joel speaking. Well, though. no, but that's uh, entrepreneur. I, I, I said that. I definitely <laughs> was she, the one who said, said it. it. So I'm resonating with but what they said. I so, do agree. Not that employees are um, bad or not useful, but I want to change the mindset. So you can be an employer. I'm an, I'm an employee. For sure. Um, but my mindset is different and I approach things from a larger, uh, grander scale of thinking. It's not just whatever so-and-so says is what I do. Yeah. I, I just, I just don't want to go down that road and get Joel started. On. <laughs> well, and, and, no, I mean, see that. See, stop. 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 <laughs> yeah, no, Cause we're going to jump into libertarianism and, <laughs> and, and free market principles and teaching these kids about capitalism. So, okay. But, so but hold on. I just want to say the one thing that's interesting about the employee side, I think it's a good point to recognize because the, the true, I don't want to say true origins, but the original school system structure, was to teach you to be a good soldier. Mm -hmm. The industrialization. Yeah, sure. Right. And then, system. and then good soldier transitioned into good employee, mm -hmm. which, you know, if for anyone who's got issues with power dynamics, really it's teaching you to be part of a hierarchy. That's it. Right. And how to follow the order of the person above you. Absolutely. Like as a very, you know, underlying fundamental, like approach. the government. <laughs> well, but I mean more so, but more just to be a follower. And that's yeah. what we're trying to break, which is what which we said. On the I podcast. love, I absolutely love that you guys had that in your podcast, right? So that's where, you know, I, you know, we're kind of hashing out the, <laughs> the, the, we rise together document. And, and, and I would say, you know, all the things you're saying about how it's being implemented, I think are good. You know, me as a, an outsider would say, again, if the goal is to improve the environment, these recommendations are good. If the goals are, oh, the, therefore it will increase grades. I would say maybe. And I would say the document doesn't demonstrate that well enough to me to, to make that. So you guys have said, I would, yeah, I was going to say, I would agree with you to an extent to say like, okay, the document doesn't just because, how do I say this? Okay. Let me give you an example. Cause that's what I like to do. Um, when I was teacher teaching, in you. <laughs> when I was teaching, um, graded during, what was it last year, September to December, um, brought a book into my, into my classroom books called ghost boys. It's about a, black student gets shot by a police officer and now he's living this life and he goes through the book of of times where he was alive and having interactions with um his peers having interactions with um bullies his mom his dad and then 
the times where he is dead in those interactions and then um the thing that is looming in the book is okay how how is the case for that police officer being played out um that is something that was very catching for a lot of the students and in that classroom i have a mix of black students a mix of um students of other ethnicities ethnicities wow words <laughs> and, <laughs> and also white students in that classroom as well and it goes to your point of okay now i've done what the document has said black student look this is the, your face it's on the cover you should be engaged and i can still have black boys that are like no i'm not okay. reading i don't care <laughs> yeah, what yeah. is reading right so the the point behind this we rights document is again the experience how do i make it so that you like coming here so here is not a death trap of six hours for you <laughs> that you can or that, glorified or that, babysitting yes for or that you have to survive <laughs> when you get here yeah. mm -hmm. yeah. right how do i make it so that you're coming to school and no and whatever we've put on the table to discuss or whatever the lesson is for the day you can give your input. You can give some insight to what's going on. Yeah. That's and they can make those connections. For because sure. What people don't realize, if you are looking at the brain, right, the more connections you can make to any given topic, the more synapses are firing in your brain and the more kind of you build tunnels and pathways mm -hmm. um, for knowledge. So that's why when we talk about culturally responsive teaching again, we're trying to make the most connections so that way we're improving brain function. Mm -hmm. So if you're always referring to let's say going wakeboarding at the cottage every summer, which I remember people talking about when I was in elementary school and I'd be like, Snaps is not firing. <laughs> sorry, like I'm not making those connections. And so that's part of the, the bringing in of not just texts, but visual images, scenarios that your students can understand and all of those things. Yeah. I, I thought the report, well, the point of the report is to show a need for um, also nuance. pardon nuance. Not nuance, but, you know, hiring more black male teachers. Yes. And so I'm like, oh, hooray. <laughs> I'm like, All right, cool. You know, um, so looking at the, looking at it from like that perspective um, in the hiring practices, um, I, you know, I'm you know, I'm being told, like I said before, I'm trying to get into the teaching field and I'm being told that, you know, there's need for not just males, but black males to be present. And I remember how important and helpful that was for me um, coming up to see people I recognize um, and talk the talk that I talk and know where I come from and, and are able to relate to me in a more intimate way. And that was and I, and I admit that was very helpful for me in school. Um, but can you guys kind of like explain the um, the hiring practice? Because I know we. Um, all me. The old method, because like a lot of, I have a, other teacher friends, and and this is always a point of debate on old hiring practices versus new versus the new hiring practices. So how does that work? Okay, so I'll start just because I came up under the, the old, old school, yeah. the old school way, <laughs> um, which again helped, um, but is also kind of hindered in some aspects, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> no one asked for your mm -hmm. so. <laughs> First, when I was hired, you were just allowed to apply to the school. They would have postings and I applied as a nobody, right? Like I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any supply teaching experience. I was fresh out of teacher's college about uh, four months maybe. And I saw a position and I was like, oh, I could do this. 
applied for it and immediately like got a call, got an interview, went in and was hired like the next day. Like it was super quick. Never had to supply teach a day in my life. Um, but I did do slow down. I did one LTO. So a long-term occasional assignment. So that's the position I was hired for. So I worked from February until June, um, for another teacher. And then I got hired permanently. Was it by the same school? Right after that. Uh, my permanent position was by another school because my school didn't have any positions, but had they, I would have. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, very easy process for me, but limiting in the fact that I didn't have an array of experiences to draw from when I became a permanent teacher. Um, and so Andre can speak to his experience a little more, which will give you the snapshots for everything that he's done in his short career. Yes. So it's we're in a place right now where me being a teacher for five years um, versus Alyssa being a teacher for how long? Ten. Ten. I have more experience than her. In terms and of diversity of, mm, of I feel like that's a stretch. Like, you <laughs> have a variety, a variety of experiences. Of variety of experiences. And the that good is kind of diversity, in my opinion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is because for me, the hiring process actually really started at Teachers College. So Teachers College is wrapping up. You have um, your teachers telling you now, okay, you need to be applying for jobs. We're going to be having job fairs, all of that. But then at the same time telling you, hey, how I got my job was essentially on graduation day, like I literally had a um, one of my professors tell me on graduation day, there's principal standing outside. And when we finished, we got to walk out and the principal that was at the school that we did our teaching practicum at, we could say, hey, do you have any jobs available? He would say, yeah, come in on Monday. Wow. And but he what was yours like now? Like yeah, but my experience was um, going through teachers college, not um, it applying for jobs and not really getting anything getting onto any school board until um a year after teachers college and once i got into the peel board so the board that i work for now it was a lot of supplying and um to my benefit because i because i'm the young black male teacher now when i step into the school there's a lot of eyes on me so people notice me right off the bat so as soon as i do something good everybody goes okay he's the He's good at what he's doing. Bring him in. Bring it. Bring him in more. And because of that, it it allowed me to gain a lot of um, connections with different principals. At Street different credibility. Schools. Yeah, <laughs> different, different, different schools, different principals. And um, my my first LTO that I got was really um a month. And again, an LTO being that I'm working for another teacher that might have gone on leave for some sort of situation for either sick leave or um maternity leave or something like that so for this one it was six sick leave it was only a month i worked um and then my next one was another teacher that went on sick leave so i worked again but um all of my LTO, ltos allowed me to experience different classrooms different settings different courses so yeah, i on the show you, you kind of made it, i think you were talking about the example where you're like you go in and you're like you got to teach something you don't even know what's going on. Exactly. The first day in the classroom, it's like a you know trial by fire, which exactly. which I definitely appreciated you talking <laughs> through. I was like, oh, I never thought of that. Maybe I shouldn't have harassed my supply teachers so much. <laughs> right? Poor supply teachers. But oh, Andre's we taught like everything. Everything. I've taught literally kindergarten to grade eight. Yeah. Taught math, everything. taught science, taught language, did an ISSP role. Like he got to kind of taste the rainbow, you know what I mean? And like <laughs> experience different things, whereas... I went in as a grade eight French teacher and then I went in and I taught language. And so I pretty much taught 
language, French, gym, drama, dance, art, like kind of in that realm, but always in that realm. Um, whereas Andre's gotten to experience way more positions than I have. Way so, more, and schools too. I've been yeah. to, I can't even count the amount of schools that I've been to just supplying for one day or doing LTOs for a couple of months or something like so, that in those five years. So, the, the, and this, and I guess this is part of one of the issues with the strike that teachers are fighting over ver- old versus new, is it? It's essentially old versus new. So which old, one's better? Hmm. Like which one? I mean, which one? Which one um, are are our teachers preferring? Okay, but, so the idea is that we are right now in a fair and transparent hiring practices kind of deal. Meaning, if you have been supplying for X amount of years or whatever it is, you build seniority, right? Because you've had that experience in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when interview time comes up for that long-term position, then you get moved to that position. So it's kind of like moving from old driving to new driving, you know, where you could just get your license right away. Now we're asking you to do a graduated system yeah, where you learn GTA. as you go because teachers college teaches you nothing. And I apologize, but like you learn nothing in your bachelor of education program. Everything you learn about teaching, you learn in the classroom. So to have all those experiences that Andre had only made him a better teacher. And so this graduated system that we're in now is kind of that fair and transparent hiring practice that we're talking about. Okay, so, so just to like one of the things I've I've known from teacher friends, like one of the examples is though you go, you know, a, a school needs to hire a teacher. My understanding is they're given the list. Here's who you hire from. Yeah, so mm-hmm. essentially how it works Which, is... Which, um, like, I would say the counter-argument to that is, what if they all suck? So essentially how it works is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you... Uh, job posting goes out if you are on the LTO list, so meaning that you have Graduated. gone through two hiring processes. So you've, um, you've done an interview to get onto the board of your choice, and now you've worked, supplied for at least 10 months. And now you are now qualified to now get another interview to end up on the LTO list. Once you are on the LTO list, so if you are successful, you end up on the LTO list. When jobs come out, so when LTOs come out, you can apply for those LTOs or those permanent positions. And based on your seniority number, essentially what happens is everybody who's applied gets put on a list with their number beside it. Top five numbers are the ones who get interviews. And with that said... It's not like a total move from meritocracy because, again, like Andre said, you have to interview for each of those stages. So if you have been supplying for 10 years, like, which is, I yeah, know. I, you could, I know someone. Yeah, if that's yeah, your thing, if you're people. supplying for 10 years and then you would decide to apply to the LTO list, there's no guarantee that just because you've been supplying for 10 years, you're making it onto that list. For sure. Um, so you always kind of have to interview for the next stage. Uh but you but, could say like you can make it through those like I mean enough people fake it till they make it right and to some extent a l- lot of people <laughs> right so yeah. I mean this is and and I would say you know okay the the good side of this is we're taking or or to your point the fair and you know transparent, uh, transparent. I was like I was gonna say something I'm like, what's the word <laughs> but the good side of the fair and transparent is you're eliminating people getting hired purely on relationship yes nepotism but is arguably you're also now preventing like the, you know, let's call it the top from rising, becoming teachers sooner, which I would argue is hindering the, the, the true benefit benefactors being the students, right? If, if you have good teachers like yourself, probably stuck in PTO list, as opposed to being full time because of this structure, that would be a counter to why this is a good option. Yeah. It's funny uh, when I think about it now, it's like, um, 
you know, even, you know, one day I'll be in that position. But like part of it is you thinking about talent wise, like talented teachers like yourselves. And then you have, you know, older guys who aren't as talented as you are. Um, and it almost the downfall seems... of seniority is where you're going. With <laughs> no, this, right? well, it's... yeah. So downfall of seniority, or maybe tenure, d- tenure or unions. I don't know. Um, but it's kind of like you know, you see that you say it's kind of like the same thing like in the NBA, right? With the with the kids jumping straight from high school. Like at mm-hmm. some point, you know, you know, the players union agreed to say, okay, you know, let let's keep these guys out because at some point, you know, the kids from high school there was a lot more. After Kobe, like lot, a lot of the a kids were jumping. A lot of guys were even actually getting drafted. You know, the and it was year old plus in the NBA is like, no, 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 we got to cut this back because I'm losing my job. Yeah, well, and then and it it comes, I'm losing my minutes. Back. Yeah, yeah, and it just comes back to the job. And again, like you said, like like meritocracy and stuff like that. Because like for a guy like me, um, well, I look at it like this, man. Yeah, I, I I love kids, I love students, I love I love that atmosphere, um, and I'm hungry. You know, and I'm I'm a very competitive, hungry, animated person. So like this 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 kind of makes me mad because I'm like, oh wait, so wait, now I gotta wait my turn, and I can't just well, come down and kick down the door. That's what I was gonna. I, the point I was going to make is that um I don't hire want, me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make it seem like this new system takes away from building relationships. Building relationships is very sorry. Building relationships in what way? Um, build it, if you are a teacher trying to get a permanent or an LTO position, building relationships with those hiring principals with admin, yeah, with admin, it it goes a long way. And my example of that, because I am Mister Storyman, is um when I had my interview for my LTO, um, it happened at our board office. And essentially how that process works is everybody who's getting interviewed is there in the room. And there's about, I want to say maybe 20 principals and they work and they work in pairs and they interview these different um, teachers until the end of the day. So when I had my interview, my interviews early in the morning, principals are still having breakfast and we're all sitting in the room. As all of the principals walk out, again, from my experience of me going around to these different schools, I had about 10 principals say, hey, Andre, you're here. Hey, yo, yo what's up, man? Yo, I'm good, man. Right? You good? And then it, and you could start to see the other principals kind of like, oh, oh, who's that? Yeah. Why do you know him? Why do you know him? And That's my man. <laughs> and, I, and, and it again, from me building those relationships and people seeing that I'm, a, I'm good at what I'm doing, that I'm legit. Now, when I walk into that interview... And we talk about it on the podcast as well as much unplanned as unplanned references. Yeah, not only unplanned references, but the fact that for me, I'm I try to stay humble. So talk. Lies. <laughs> you said so, try. Try. So <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to the the hiring process and those interviews and having to talk about yourself and all the good that you do, I I stumble sometimes. Mm-hmm. And what I usually do to end off those interviews is like, okay, I know maybe I didn't say the buzzwords that you were looking for. Maybe I didn't answer the questions that you were looking for. Call my references. Go talk to those. <laughs> those go talk to those nine it's people. A threat. Yeah. <laughs> no, th- because there, there's a lot of I know a lot of teachers, and there's a lot of teachers that are out there that again know how to play the game. They know how to say the right thing, yeah, and now yeah, they yeah. now they get into the position, but they don't know what to do. What I they don't know how to do what yeah, I. Yeah, they're going to be better in the interview, but they're not going to be better in the classroom. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and and this is where you know I would say in my world of I'm in finance accounting, you know, the, I've seen more and more. Uh, there's this idea of, you know, having a diverse pool of candidates. And, and part of that, you know, it's not about 
um, you know, trying to make sure we meet, you know, there's an aspect of like, okay, if we lack diversity, what's the cause, figure it out. But it's also not what, what I've appreciated lately. I'm hearing more conversations about how do we make sure we open up our candidate pool so that we're not excluding good people just because of, you know, whether we're using weird buzzwords that one demographic wouldn't use or, you know, we're say we're asking for something that would exclude a whole bunch of people that we actually want to include. Right. So maybe you're saying, oh, you need five years experience in this type of role when, well, because of, you know, let's say historically speaking, a certain demographic hasn't got that senior executive role. Are we potentially excluding candidates who are qualified? And so where I take somewhat issue with this is kind of going like, okay, by just limiting to five candidates who, you know, are on the seniority list, Mm -hmm. you know, now all the things you've said about relationships are important, but you're almost getting pushed down the list based on what's a, you know, the higher quality talent pool Mm -hmm. are going to be all the highest seniority people. Applying every single and time. And there are definite limitations to this. Like, don't get us yes. wrong. Yeah, yeah. We understand that this is not a perfect system by any means. Like, Andre should have had a job a long time, a long ago. time ago. And that's well, unfortunate that he had to wait this long. Yeah. And that's why I want to... I'm torn. What about the... You know, like, we haven't really talked about it. What about the seniority tenure side of it that's... You know, I think it's related where you've got teachers who should no longer be teaching. Who... Yeah, well, arguably can't get well, fired. Yeah, yeah. Or, well, okay. Just, just, yeah. Before we get to all that... Um, <laughs> Uh, because this is just one aspect of many um, that's on the table for um, the, the strike issue. Yes. Mm-hmm. So just just we'll give you guys the time to like kind of point out what the issues are because there's parents at home sitting, you know, with their kids at home, annoying them, saying like, you know, should be with Andre right now. Yeah. Why aren't you at school? <laughs> yeah. Why aren't you at school, man? <laughs> Yo. So yeah, so, I guess, so so how is the seniority part playing into the strike or or the asks? Um, is it at all? I mean, we've talked about it a bit. Is that where you're? No, no, that's what I was gonna say. I was just gonna just say like just for you guys to um, list off the points. Yeah, yeah, just list off the points. Okay, so, do you want me to list off and then you can elaborate? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, um, so again, these are in no particular order, but uh, special education needs to be appropriately funded. So that's kind of the first bit. Sorry, yeah, yeah, it unpacks special education. Yeah. So what special education is is essentially our students that are in need of extra help, whether they have. Or are whether they're challenges that they have an LD, which is a learning disability. Thank you. Which is a <laughs> learning disability, or maybe they just um, lack that attention and focus that that some of our other students have. Or there's physical limitations as well. Like look at our our developmentally delayed program. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you also have Section Twenty Three. Yes. Uh, which my wife was a part of. So okay. So, so she'll resonate with the second point that's coming up then, which is. Um, uh, classroom violence yes. needs to be addressed. So, again, they were, and we in particular have not had these individually for us. So, I can't speak to experiences from me, but I've seen um, teachers now wearing like body armor, which is weird, like wearing vests and wearing mm-hmm. like they Enough were saying, when, yeah, like my students are abusing me. Yes. Like they're getting scratched and kicked and punched. And the solution was, uh, gloves like high gloves so that way they weren't getting scratched on their arms and body armor like again yeah, they, i don't want to make a, it seem like it's medieval times but no like, no no. there's a um, from working as an ea i know uh ea in uh high school so exact, edu- or, educational edu- assistant yeah, so right, it's yeah. essentially the same Similar as a TA, to section 23 right so um <laughs> there's essentially a 
I guess a sweater that you can say, like a zip up sweater that has literally padding in the arms, has padding in the chest because you're dealing with students that can act in violent manners and it's to protect yourself. For me, it was me in those developmentally delayed classrooms dealing with high school students. So now you have students that are nonverbal, autistic, that get upset and their thing is is we're going to lash out. But again, you're a high school student. You're in grade 12. It doesn't matter that you don't, maybe you don't know how to communicate. You're in grade 12. You're strong. You punch a tiny five, three teacher. You you can lay her out or lay him out. Right. So you have this going on in not only in high schools, we have it happening in kindergarten classrooms as well. Yeah. So we need kind of those two, like the special education and the classroom violence. They're kind of uh, linked together in terms of having supports in the classroom. So when you're eliminating your educational assistance and all of those supports that are put in place, um, you're leaving teachers stranded and it's hard enough to just educate a class never mind having to deal with everything else that you're dealing with. And I think that's the piece that people miss. Um, they think that we're just there to, to teach ABC one, two, three, but you don't realize that like I'm sitting in my class during my planning time and kids are asking me, you know, Mrs. Gray, can I make an appointment with you? I just need to talk or like my life is falling apart or even worse. Like I've had kids come to me. I am thinking about killing myself. Mm. Like we then have not just thinking, I've tried. I have tried to like, I literally have had to, since I became um, assist trained, so that's suicide uh, prevention, and you are literally getting students to come down off of the, I want ledge. to kill myself. Yeah, like mm. off of the ledge. And after I did that training, I've already had to had to have done, I've already done, I can't even speak, um, two or three assists where I had to talk kids down. So like, it is more than just than just teaching, yes. and I use that in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, would would, it, would I be wrong to say that to some extent there's an aspect of just acknowledgement that there's resource needed for these particular problems? Mm-hmm. Um, we just need support. And that is really, that's just the first two points that we covered. Right? <laughs> yeah. <other> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. two out of six. Yeah, yeah keep going. Um, so uh, maintaining kindergarten. So if we are those glorified babysitters that everyone keeps saying we are, don't you want your kindergarten babysitters to be there like sure. I'm, like taking away full day kindergarten is not only going to present a problem for the teachers in those positions but think about parents now you're moving to half day you're going back to half day kindergarten and then half day daycare so you're paying for daycare and then um, over flooding the daycare system over flooding. again yeah like there's just a lot like having full day kindergarten is not only beneficial for parents it's beneficial for um for children like in ha- in having those kind of social groups and learning how to navigate other other people like i have three i well i have four kids but three of my kids are young like six uh four and three and kindergarten is fantastic like they need to learn how to socialize with other people and learn how to put things away when they're finished and, <laughs> and learn share. <laughs> and share and mm. routines and understanding like you know here we get to this is what a circle is sit in a circle like let's sing some songs like all of those things that seem minute and irrelevant are so beneficial and to those synapses right i was gonna say there's teachers that even push kindergarten teachers that push that envelope even farther where you have well they'll they'll notice um they're having those interactions with the, their students they notice okay they want to learn about this 
let me go and research this. Let me bring this into the classroom. I've seen it countless times where kids, kindergarten kids are playing outside. Kid finds a uh, ladybug and all of a sudden the next day or two days later, the TA and the teacher have have started a whole ladybug lesson. Right. Like and then they're building things and crafting ladybug wings for their students that they probably purchased the supplies with their own money. Exactly. Um, and there's just I feel like too often, especially in times of of, you know, labor disputes, teachers are vilified to the nth degree like everyone's like ah what do you even do all day like yeah you get yeah. paid in the summer yeah, time like, what are you doing gosh it's uh it's frustrating but and again just like in any profession you are going to have teachers who are not doing what you yeah, would yeah. like them to do yeah, yeah. but like for the most part we are here for these students for and sure. that's a big point that i feel like people are missing like we love what we do i genuinely love teaching as mm-hmm. much as they drive me crazy and sometimes I'm like, everybody don't speak. <laughs> <laughs> I love what I do. So yeah, those what are the first the three. Um, fourth was that hiring, uh, fair and transparent hiring practices are maintained. So we talked a bit about that. Um, and then class sizes that meet student needs. So our minister of education right now is a private school baby. And not that there's anything wrong with private school, but private schools boast having smaller class sizes like that's the draw to come to private school like Mm -hmm. get this one-on-one attention only six to one in a classroom like six students one teacher if that wasn't important why would they boast those things you know what i mean like they do it but i mean you could argue they're it's just marketing no but they do it in universities too where they say hey come to this university because you're not going to be just a number Mm -hmm. there's going Mm -hmm. to be relationship with you and your prof that's what one of the things that That's got me I, to go I, to well, go to Guelph Humber. You can make that presentation. The question of like, does that represent the reality is a different. Absolutely. As right. a teacher like on the inside. It does. hundred um, percent. Having a class of six students or even having a class of 20. So my original homeroom this year had 19 students. All of the things I could do in that classroom were insane. I knew those kids in a month before reorganization happened for us so well because there was only 20 of them and it was easy to make those connections and have that one-on-one time and sit with them and the other kids maybe let them work in small groups in a class his uh grade eight class that he was originally in i have them for french right now there are 28 29 of them it feels like that simpsons meme where like the kids are sitting on top of each other Mm -hmm. in like this long building like desk contraption that's what it feels like when they're in my room i'm like i who are you like what is happening where are we mm-hmm. and that's only 28 right like only again I use in that my quote. in my two grade seven classes right now i have one that has 27 and the other one has 25 in it and again it's that if we are driving or we are trying to be teachers that are building off of experience and making sure that our students are staying engaged with the experience that they're having in our classroom it is it becomes very difficult to do so when you have more and more and more students in the classroom and just to like bring this down to like a fundamental like anyone who has kids can understand this have you ever hosted a kid's birthday party and been in like a play place for two hours with 10 kids that's what that's why i don't go (laughs) nightmare again with my kids like no i have like whatever it is 15 five-year-olds in a place and i'm like all right we're done here like thank you no thanks that's a lot now imagine having to try and teach them when Mm -hmm. all they want to do is be up and moving and when we're talking about class sizes understand that those classrooms including 
the ones that have um, learning disabilities or learning challenges and that are physical disabilities, they are taken into that class average size. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about moving the class average size up to whatever it is, uh, 27, 28, 30, you're taking into account those small classes of four students, five students, 12 students that are in those learning disability classes. So if you're looking at the average class size for a traditional uh, classroom, you're really pushing the limits here because you have this really low end that mm -hmm. people haven't accounted for because yeah. they're only thinking, ah, 25 plus 30, divide that down the middle, that's your average. No, your average includes yeah. those well, low classes. You know, the, the other side of the equation obviously is going to give you statistics in a way that's most favorable to them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, so uh, did we cover all the points? Cause no, I there's, think there's uh, one. And then the last, the last one, one. is the one that everyone's angry about is compensation that keeps up with inflation. So we're not asking for anything more than we have right now. Uh, just let us so stay I, where we I, are. I, I, I well, let it finish, let it finish, let it finish, let it finish. I've worked for the yeah. Saga yes. and then I've also worked, you know, in a uh, nonprofit area. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things like that I found, um, is perceived potentially, and I don't know if this is the case for you, so you can speak to it or not, mm -hmm. but while working for the city of Mississauga, there's no such thing as a bonus, but you have two types of raises. You have inflation-based raise, and you also have performance-based raise. And the argument is, oh, you're going to get a performance raise, but not a bonus. And I would say for the taxpayer, that's actually worse off because now that's the performance raise is ingrained in your, like now you get that every year. That's your new base. Mm -hmm. And so if, Whereas like in the nonprofit world, essentially I'm getting a bonus for one year on my performance and then, except my new job doesn't have that, but that's different. <laughs> um, but then I'm getting uh, an inflation-based adjustment. So inflation-based adjustment means cumulatively, I'm only getting one and a half to 2% every year. Exactly. But if you're getting a performance base on top of that, now you're looking at three and a half to 5%. And what I have found that is unique to government funded roles as a po because there's this demonization of bonuses as being a bad thing but in reality i would argue it rewards you for a one-time performance not rewards you you don't get future benefit of that one good year um so how does that you know factor into how do raises work you know besides just the inflation side bonuses so those kind of things i think again this is when those numbers get skewed um, and people start thinking, oh, you all make 100K a year. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Nope, <laughs> not near. even close. <laughs> um, we're looking at averages, right? And so when you start off in teaching, you are making pennies. And when I say pennies, I'm not even exaggerating because um, let's say you finish your uh, degree, you've done, so you finished your undergraduate degree, that's four years of education. Then you've done a two-year Teacher's teacher education college, yeah. program that you now come out with a master of teaching. So professional studies, you walk into your teaching career and we have a grid for our payment mm -hmm. or for our, our salaries. So you can go across the grid and up the grid or down the grid, however you want to look at it. You start kind of somewhere in the middle with that master's, um, but baseline year zero. So years of experience, you kind of go up year zero. I think, I don't even know what it is now, but when I started, it was like $35,000 a year. Which, to be honest, if you look at a lot of professions, isn't pennies. 
But, but it is yeah. when you start taking out all of the things that they've taken and not just I know. regular like because, again, everyone looks at their salaries and they're like, oh, yeah, this sucks. Like taxes suck. Yes, taxes suck. We all pay. We all pay taxes. However, the thing that people are mad about, oh, you have this great pension. Yeah, I pay into my pension like that's why dollar for dollar with the government. So yeah. we have two. We have a teacher pension that we pay into and CPP. So while most people are just getting their CPP taken out, uh, I would say most employers some you know whether it's five and five right i contribute five percent to my rsp and and they contribute five that's pretty common as or or ours is high well no no but that's because you have a pension yes an rsp means i bear all the risk yes the pension means you have zero risk which is fine right and and i would say to you this is one thing Mm -hmm. the only people who have defined benefits are government employees yes and so like that's one thing that like you know there's a there's a disconnect i would say from the other side where like I would say to you, by the time you retire, if you still have a defined benefit, I will be shocked because, you know, you look at this is where like we can get into a bit of the the dilemma here is, Mm -hmm. you know, go back 2008, 2009 when when GM was going bankrupt, the union is negotiating with GM and the, the company says, if you don't take this deal, we don't exist. The government doesn't have that side of the negotiation. Right. And so the problem on the negotiation side is, well, the government is a organization that just continues to print money and so hey how is the cost of the school system relate to its benefit well we don't know because nobody is paying a price to evaluate the benefit they're receiving fair and i get where people are coming from when they're looking at our salaries and they're like oh my goodness but with that said like this is not we are doing professional training like again this is you're doing you have a master's at this point by the time you graduate now um And then not only that, once you go in, we are taking additional qualification courses. So those are all of the courses that can move you kind of up the grid Mm -hmm. um, to that level where, you know, people are like, ooh, like you're making big, big money. Um, But again, those courses are like a thousand dollars a pop um, Mm -hmm. to, again, take courses in whatever it may be guidance, uh, spec ed, like all of the math specialist. And again, it takes years to kind of move up and move to a place where you're getting paid. But with that said, I don't understand why we are upset that the people who are educating our students are paid reasonably. Like, I'm, I'm still not understanding why the disconnect. I get that that we are like, again, I'm paying taxes, too. So I'm paying my own salary. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, why are we so upset that? we have provided good working conditions and salaries for people who are educating youth and making them want to learn and creating well, this and environment. I think it, to some extent goes back to like, we talk about the dispersity and outcome. You got the kid who's barely passing. They're like, what do you mean I'm paying my teacher? Let's just say $60,000 a year mm-hmm. and they can't even get my kid to pass. Right. So like, I think, and again, I'm not, you know, I'm trying to st- steel man, the person who's critical of the yeah, wages, no, absolutely. right? Because, and, and so this is where, you know, I, I've said this uh, on the podcast a couple of times where I, I think we're going to see something like the Uberization of, of education because we're, you know, you look at Uber with regards to blowing up a, you know, government cartel with regards to cab system, right? We're, we're, we're continually hitting this like friction point. And, and I would challenge, it's a bit of, well, we've got two monopolies negotiating with each other. And, and you know, as you made a point about the um, private school system, boasting small class sizes Mm -hmm. well as soon as somebody figures out a way with technology to make you know private school cost two thousand dollars a year three thousand dollars a year not ten to fifteen 
you know, the school system has this, I would argue mass exodus of anyone who's not lower class being like, again, thinking through, you know, someone who's struggling saying, Hey, I can pay two grand or three grand and actually, you know, help my kid. Um, and so the reason I bring that up is to say, you know, why are these cuts happening? What's going like, you know, there's an aspect of as a province, Ontario has the largest, what's called non-sovereign debt per capita in the world. Meaning non-sovereign, meaning we, we don't print money. The federal government prints money. The only, the next closest is California. And the dilemma we're faced with is, okay, well, we're literally paying for the school system through our kids' taxes, not our taxes, our kids' taxes. And so something's got, you know, between school and medical, those are the two biggest costs for the province. So some arguably something's got to give because deficits for the government are not sustainable. And so I only bring that up to say, okay, well, I look at, you know, a couple of these things, smaller classes, special needs, kindergarten. I put them all in one category to some extent because they all represent costs. And, and I would say, you know, if you look at a profit oriented business, this, when they start losing money, they start going, okay, I got to do things differently. How do I change? The world around me is changing. The, the school system, the government funded programs don't have that signal that the world around them is changing and they need to shift. And so when I look at, you know, special needs as an example, I would say as a, you know, entrepreneur, as a, someone outside going, why are they, why does every kid just get to go to the school that they locally get to go to? Is that the most efficient way as a school board for us to provide the needs for the special needs? Because, and that plays into the smaller class sizes. One of the things I, I was literally sitting beside my wife. She's like, she's in, um, she's doing her, uh, undergrad through Athabasca. And so she's, I don't know what class she's in right now, but she was like in her textbook, she was like, it literally word for word says, there is no difference between 20 and 40 kids in a class when you take out those special need type of scenarios, because those are the kids where like, they really need one to five, right? So when you, now I'm talking purely performance mm. and, and you've already laid out a great case where like, you're going to lose some of that personal relationship. When you have 20 kids, it's way easier to be personal, way more engaged. So I, I get there's a, but what the stat, like I have a, a study from Fraser Institute that basically found, this is post-secondary, that when you go literally bump that class size up, the marks don't get hindered. Now that I would say to you, go back to what we were talking about with wages. If you've got a teacher who can handle 40 kids and do exceptionally well, they should be paid more than the person can, who can only handle 30. And, and because they're providing a greater amount of value, but this is where the pricing system, like, again, this goes back to the economics conversation we have where it's like prices communicate value. And, and so because you don't have a price exchange with regards to purchasing of education, we lose that information to recognize, Hey, this teacher is more valuable because they're actually being able to bring in, you know, 40 more customers. If you, I know I'm using bad terminology, <laughs> but, but the point is to say the system itself has areas where there's flaws that we can't really perceive some of the things we need to perceive. And so I look at the cuts and go, is this a challenge that we need to look at things differently? Could we redesign special education? Could we redesign classroom sizes in a way to say, how do we do this more efficiently and more effective with less money? The problem I would challenge is the union has zero interest in lowering the number of students or sorry, teachers, more students per class means less students, less teachers. They inherently, that is 
almost a faux pas for the, the union because that means they have less responsibility. That means they have less control. That means they're serving their base being the teachers less because they had to lower the number of jobs. So even if this is what is needed economically because financially it's unsustainable, the union will never sign off on it. And guess what? They don't really have to because the government can't say, well, we're going to go bankrupt like the GM scenario. Ooh. I don't, there were so many points in there. Yeah. I don't even know which one. I'm like, uh. okay. So, um, can I ask guys? Like, is there an end in sight in regards to the strike for parents who are like, yeah, when is this gonna end, guys? I, th- I was gonna say, <laughs> nope. no, not in her head. I don't. But I, th- I think there is, but there it has to be on the government's part to look at, look at the demands themselves and say, okay, not just from a business standpoint standpoint from a an experience standpoint because that's what the the thing that we don't that maybe is not getting mentioned which is what we continually say on our podcast is that the teaching is the experience you got a whole bunch of you have a whole bunch of adults who say they love children and they want to teach no matter what that is some teach kindergarten some teach grade 12 or or some sort of specialist in grade 12 um but what is there for what is underlying for all teachers is the experience. How do I build an experience that is going to make the students want they once they leave my classroom not only remember what what they were learning but actually enjoy it and maybe turn that um that joy that they had for what they were learning turn it into a career, turn it into a um new job or something like that. And the points that we have that are laid out here all really to me when i look at them they all really look at okay how what are the how is the government looking at us do they see us as people that are just driving out test scores or do they see us as professionals that have made it our jobs to enhance the experiences of kids that are from ages four to 17 and once we've done that or if they're if they're going to acknowledge that and acknowledge what we are doing from that standpoint, then you would see that the things that we are asking for are demands for that fair deal. They are a fair deal because from previous contracts, not much has changed. Mm-hmm. It's not like we're asking, and it's not like we're asking for more money. And again, the and I think that's even why when you look at that um, etfo sheet, why the inflation thing, why it's Sorry, at the etfo for the listeners. Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Thank you. That's the name of our union. So uh, they have literally on their website, they have the demands that we were just talking and about. And I'll try and uh, I'll get the link from you guys and put it right. up. So the, the, the last point is that that monetary piece, that money piece where we're like, okay, we're only looking for the increase to go with how society is increasing. And to an extent to even today, we got paid um, in the appeal where we got paid last Friday. We've already lost that 1% that they're talking about off of one paycheck Mm -hmm. so this like this thing is not about money anymore yeah like it's it's past like yes that is one of six things on the on the docket but like this is the last thing that we are concerned about like i feel like i wish i wish i had a visual like i almost wish this was a youtube video where i could (laughs) just bring people into my classroom like Mm -hmm. i want you to look at my bookshelf if you look at my bookshelf and it's filled to the brim with books, I purchased all of those with my money. Mm-hmm. Those really? Were- yeah. Oh, oh gosh. I'm going to do a post on my Instagram at some point <laughs> that shows the difference between a government funded bookcase and my teacher funded bookcase. For like, sure. 
I paid for those books. Um, my classroom right now, I have flexible seating in my classroom. That means that I have couches and um, exercise balls and floor mats and carpet and all of these different things. So students can, or stand-up desks, students can sit wherever they want, um, what's most beneficial for their learning. All my money. Like I paid for that classroom. So I just resent people looking at us like, what do you even do in there? Like, mm-hmm. what good are you to society? And I feel like that's what you're telling us well, when we're in this position. And I would say, I think part of the problem is because because of the nature of you work for the union, you don't get your nuanced to be highlighted. You're just part of a broad spectrum. And you might be the exceptional outlier. So unfortunately, you're not going to get recognized. You're not going to get recognized. The only way you end up getting recognized, and this is where I would say I take challenge with the the, um, seniority aspect of your pay. Like, in essence, they're failing to recognize that you're providing greater than normal value to the students you're you're going above and beyond obviously with your own resources such that you know should they be reimbursing you well maybe they can't because of the system but they could reimburse you by saying okay we need to reward this teacher before they decide that there's an alternative out there that's better but then that's that i think by doing that then you take away from that fair and transparency where now i can essentially say okay i like what Alyssa is doing in her classroom. So as her principal, I'm going to make sure that she gets paid well, more than somebody and else. And this is and where, but I would say that's going to cause a lot of strife. <laughs> that beca- but again, this goes back to like, what's the cause of that? Well, that's because the school doesn't have to think about profitability, right? Because if they were doing that in an unfair manner, it would cost them to be unfair. But if they were looking at profitability and, and how much value they're contributing to the students, i.e., oh, school kids aren't leaving because our teachers suck. Kid, te- te- we're actually increasing because our teachers are so good, you, you, you're the, like, cause I hear what you're saying about the fair side, but I'm going, well, why does that even an issue? That's an issue because of the nature of the system you're in. And so to then point the finger at, well, we can't have meritocracy. It's like the, the problem is more, um, fundamental. And so, you know, that's where, I mean, off the record or before we started, I was talking to you guys about the idea of, you know, my, in my recommendation, is really to introduce union competition, right? So for you to be able to say, you know what, the, I don't know what the number is, let's say $1,000 a year that goes to my union, they're not serving my needs. You know, maybe you have a unique scenario where, you know, you wanna be able to work three days a week or only mornings on a full-time contract. Well, that's not even an option because the nego- the union negotiated that away or we're, like basically made that, again, they negotiated that away because for the teachers as a whole, it makes sense. But for the individual who wants it, it's not even an option now. Now you got to go to the private sector to find that even as an option. And so my point is that, you know, there's there's uniformity in who you are because the union is a monopoly. And so there's so much of this tension and relational stuff that like, I would say you get over uh, unfairly demonized by, by parents, but I would say the union takes almost no flack. Whereas I would argue they're more of the problem and again, I go back to because they lack competition. They don't have to deal with the fact that they're doing their job poorly and teachers are now going to their competition. I don't know. I'm I'm actually oh like I'm okay with kind of the way we are structured. I don't and maybe this is just a me thing. I don't need a bonus. I don't need a yearly bonus for doing 
what, what I love. feel is best for my yeah. students. I'm not saying that every classroom should look like mine. Every teacher should be like me, but I know what works for, for my space and the mm -hmm. way, the style of teaching that, that I kind of put forth. And that's why the podcast is called teachers like us, because yeah, we are a little bit kind of against the grain, so mm -hmm. to speak. And we do things our own way, but I'm also okay with not having compensation that recognizes that like that's not a big thing for me and I get the union deal but if if having the greater good kind of serviced is not for you then then yeah take your talents to the pub to the private sector well like, and and I would challenge that statement of the greater good being serviced because yeah. my, my position would be we are actually worse off because of government schools now there's like a huge layer to unpack that point but but the point is like the greater good could be you know i could argue well if you homeschool five kids who are all at you at risk youth in terms of whether it's trouble or learning and you're not engaged in class well and and volunteer well that's the greater good but, you know like my point being that i i think we too easily look at government jobs as like oh we're serving the community but if you look at compensation wise government employees make 10 percent more where for comparative jobs so this idea of like public servants has gone in my opinion has gone to the wayside because you're actually being compensated more and and actually that transpires in the pension aspect of your pay that 10 percent more really shows up in your pension and truthfully though again it, i think it's kind of different depending on for me personally where you are but for teaching i would say and rightfully so like that's yeah. kind of Yes, I deserve to be compensated for I've, the work that we're doing. And maybe that's not the case for everybody. And I'm speaking because I know what I do. I know what Andre does in his classroom. Like our classrooms are side by side. Um, I would I would reword what you said just in, from an economics perspective. Okay. You should be compensated for the value you contribute. The Because there's a whole bunch of teachers true. who but then work. How do you, it's true. But then how do you measure value? Well, and that's where... In, in the free market, value is measured. Like, let's just use a really simple example that I like using. Let's say you're trying to sell a used phone on Kijiji. Mm -hmm. If I'm like, you got to, if you're buying it and I'm selling it, you got to value that phone for more than your, than what you're willing to pay. So if your maximum price is a hundred bucks that you're willing to pay and the minimum price I'm willing to let it go for is 150, a transaction doesn't occur because I value it more than you do. Mm -hmm. Right? So this is where, prices when they're in the free market communicate information about value now there i understand there's a power dynamic there's aspects where you know if you don't uh hold any sort of influence you have no ability to command more wages because you know your alternative is not working now if you have another job and you're negotiating a new job you actually have gain so much more power and this is where i would say the Good teachers in the seniority system lose the ability to negotiate based on their value. And what I was going to say was just why, when I brought up the topic of prices, is that essentially by doing that, really the only price that you could look at is test scores. And see, you want to get rid of some money, 
Scrap EQAO. I know. I know. Yeah. You're, like, tr- you're teaching the test. I know. Trust cannot, me. Nobody likes EQAO. The kids don't like it. We don't like it. The only people that like it are the government for that very reason. I, I kind of liked it because my answer for a math question got used. But <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so explain, explain what EQAO. EQAO is so it's standardized testing and the goal of the standardized testing is to see or to test where all of our students are in terms of what they are learning in class based on school based on school and to kind of see where um, I guess children are being educated based on the curriculum so to speak like are you matching the curriculum um, in terms of like when we go back to like measurement, have you hit all these measurement strands so that way your students can regurgitate them on this test that makes them panic because they literally are stressed from the time they enter grade six all the way up until the day of EQAO. Like when's EQAO happening? Oh my goodness, I'm not ready. Yeah, I have and to remember have... the first test is in grade three. Yeah, like exactly. Like I don't, you want to get rid of and find some money? Get rid of the nonsense. Like I... Again, if we even just look at something as simple simple as history, right? Like Darnell's expertise. <laughs> imagine having so our curriculum document says for grade seven, um, explore kind of the roles of uh, individuals in New France. Okay, you can tackle that any way you want. Most teachers tackle it from a Eurocentric perspective, right? Like they. They explored mm-hmm. and landed and everything was fantastic. Yeah, there was a little fight from 1997. Yeah, there was well, a little I, fight and I, I then everything say, was okay. Pick a controversial yeah. example of like World War II. How much do we tell it from the anti-Nazi story as opposed to never telling? Like if you read the textbook from a German student perspective, you would be blown away that like, oh, wait, we don't like there's not that hatred almost ingrained. In, and I only bring that up because. I think it's a great point, but there's, you know, even like there's that idea of like the winner tells the story mm-hmm. for yeah. war or for history. Absolutely. And I teach my grade seven history through an indigenous perspective, right? Like as someone who is indigenous, like that is important to me that, you know, we honor the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yep. So I teach a very indigenous centric uh, focused perspective for history, but if we have EQAO as our standard Mm -hmm. and we go and my kids write that test versus another set of kids who have been taught to the test of new France, it doesn't actually exist for grade seven. So, um, but they have (laughs) been taught the example. (laughs) Yeah. Like Eurocentric, um, new France, this is all we want from you. And my kids are coming in and they were like, but what about the Métis? What about the Haudenosaunee, um, and the Oneida? Like, and my kids give that paragraph, they're going to get rated like a level two, which is a C or a level one, which is a D almost failing. And then your kids who can regurgitate that information, they are getting the A's and their things will be used as an example on the test. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So again, like, yeah. And I think, you know, I know we didn't really touch on some of the the challenges I put towards as like, I was trying to paint paint the other side of the picture, but I Mm -hmm. think, you know, your example of bringing EQAO up as a, as a, as a challenge um, I think really resembles where almost there's this talking past each other between the union and, and, you know, the government. I think that uh, my comment about the Uberization of technology or of education is if we just keep doing what we're doing, meaning, you know, a lot of these questions of, of funding or, or resource allocation doesn't say, okay, here's how we're going to do it differently in order to be more cost effective because we're working with the government to say, we know the budget needs to to change because 
financially we're in an unsustainable place where, you know, there's that, that part of the conversation is like the union doesn't even care. I would say that that's me as an outsider. Like there's no care in the cost. It's here's how we're doing it. And here's the bill. And, and so, you know, that's why I brought up, I mean, I would say kindergarten, our second episode on the podcast was on kindergarten and basically full day kindergarten has been proven to have no negligible or has a negligible effect by grade two. Now you did bring up qualitative things with regards to parents having to fund it and, and you know, the, the daycare system. Um, but I would even, you know, go more fundamental and say, you know, are we potentially, um, forcing kids out of the home too soon, right? Like as a developmental perspective, like I, you know, I'm blessed with a scenario where my wife, we had two kids back to back. Basically when those kids are four or five years old, my wife can go back to work, but we decided that it made more sense for our children's development. And I look at it and going, you know what, being not in, so I have a two and a half, two and a half year old now who's not in daycare. And I might see there's some motor skills he doesn't quite have, or, you know, there's certain things that I'm like, okay, if he was in a daycare system, he'd be exposed to certain things and be doing things differently. But I look at his almost like emotional intelligence and it far exceeds what I see in other kids. And I would say that's because my wife is able to tailor what he needs to learn on a day-to-day basis. And so my point of bringing that up is to say, you know, this is a huge cultural piece where it's like, okay, you get nine months off or now it's a year and a half off to be a mom and then go back to the workplace. Like I know so many people who intentionally go back to work just for nine months so they can have a second kid. Did that. And and, and, and part of the question is like, we almost have to financially. Right. And so, but I would say, is that's what's best for the children? I don't know. I think we've just defaulted into, well, someone else can take care of my kid. And I think though that like, you mentioned it, but there's a, there's a larger issue or there's larger issues at play here. Like I would have loved to stay home with my kids Mm -hmm. longer. I cannot afford to do that again with four kids. Like, and I had my kids pretty close together. Like, um, I had my, my daughter, I came back to work for a little bit and I was pregnant with my son out. I was pregnant even before I got back to work with my third, (laughs) before I left again. And that was just financially, like I had to, it was my only option. So while I get I mean, that, like homeschooling is nice, and I would—that's a lie. I would not love to homeschool my kids. I like <laughs> older kids. My kids yeah, are no, crazy. Exactly, right? You like to homeschool teenagers, yeah, not, not absolutely. Kids. But I would say, like, I ha- we had to make sacrifice to make that work, right? Like, I live in a basement apartment. I how drive we drive one car. Like, these are things that, like, okay, we think this is valuable. We think this is what we need to do. How are we gonna make it happen? And I think, you know, arguably, there's too much of well, we need two cars. Well, we need this or you know, I can't live in a basement apartment. I got to live, you know, I have to live with this level of prestige or, and, and so I would say, that's why I said it's a bigger cultural Mm -hmm. issue of, well, I got to be working, you know, and, and, you know, that's where I bring up the question of like, is it better? I don't know the answer, but I do know that full day kindergarten as an example, financially it's expensive. Like it's not cheap. And if it doesn't reap benefit for the children, it like, and that's where, when we did the episode on it, basically by there, you do see some benefit early, mm-hmm. but by grade two, it gets washed out because, and you know, that's where I bring it up to my wife. It's like, Hey, if my kid's slightly behind in language, actually what I've learned is learning language. Isn't that complicated. It's actually the more like emotional skill that I'm like, I don't even care that he's 
you know, slight, you know, I'm talking like two to three months behind. It's not like he's, mm-hmm. you know, saying his first words at two and a half. Mm-hmm. But that's where I'm like, I, I'm willing to accept that because it might be abnormal. But from what I've learned, it's still long term actually beneficial. And so that's where I bring it up just to say, like, doing things fundamentally different, the school system, I go back to, there's no profit. There's no signals to say, oh, hold on. We got to do things differently. It's people like you who like, hey, I'm realizing to people more engaged, I got to spend my own money to get kids to be engaged. And so I would say, why is that the case? And, 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 and I would argue it's because the principal doesn't have the budget with their level of control, with their level of responsibility to say, based on the kids in our particular school, here's what we need to do differently. The, the, I would, the school system or the boards are, are, in essence, too much of control. I know you said, like, yeah, the, the curriculum is, like, very linear and, like, oh, teach this little simple thing. But, you know, for the most part, the resources you have, how you implement those are not under your control. With, with the exception of how. Yeah, I, the I, how is... Yeah, I was going to say, I, I agree with you to an extent, but, and I think that's why even in our negotiation is why we're looking for a fair deal. <laughs> it might not be the best deal or the right deal right now, but it is a fair one where we can look at, okay, these are the things that we want. We know what you want. We know what you're looking from us. We need to meet in the middle and make this fair. But in us meeting in the middle those six points we're not moving from them mm-hmm. well and that's you know my challenge was are we not moving from them because we're going to do it the same way we did as opposed to how do we do this more cost effectively because i think special needs kids yeah you need to you need to service them they need they need you know resources but is there a way that we could do this differently and cut the resources required in half similarly you know you look at the violence scenarios right that's obviously a problem. Okay, how do we how do we look at this differently, right? Do we have the ability to say, you know what, this kid is a problem. He has to leave the classroom. No, you're not allowed to do that for the most part, right? So actually being able to, the problem to some extent I think is, again, it's government provided. Well, every kid's got to have the equal experience because the government's funding it. And so, oh, you know, the special needs scenario. No, we can't ship them too far because it's government funded. Meanwhile, they would get, probably a better education if there was a commonality in the students they're learning with now the problem you know there's that tension between well but now we're making them their own class they're an outsider they're not with their peers fine but is the goal to be part of your peers or is the goal to learn and and i i recognize there's a tension there but my point is that we're we're financially in an unsustainable place and again i go back to the union saying we just need to do more of the same as opposed to how do we cut costs, do it differently? I think that part of that, again, falls on the government. Like that is on you as the minister of education to now start to think about other ways without saying, let's just cut it. But have you yeah. looked at other other options? Have you really come to sit down? Like he hasn't even come to negotiate. He's sending his people, which is, you know, if that's yeah, yeah, the way you do it, that's the way you do it, right? But then if they had a deal, like they were within reach of a deal they just had to take it back to the minister and the minister was like nah no like so if (laughs) if everyone who sat down at that table was like this works for now what then yeah i mean that's a you know i mean we can't answer that question to some extent but you know that's a i don't want to say it's a different question but that's a you know another aspect of this that's 
you know, a problem, let's call it. Um, but I, I, I go back to, you know, financially, it, it's, to me, it's concerning because we're just passing the bill. Like, yeah, but my problem too is that we keep looking at education or we're trying to treat education like a business. Like you keep saying, right? Like it's not, well, but I would say we don't, we, we central plan it. Central planning is the problem, right? Like you talk about the, the, you know, changes at the curriculum level. The problem is the curriculum doesn't deal with nuance and we're talking about problems that are nuanced. Yeah. And so we're looking at like the minister's level to me is like, I can't plan ahead (laughs) to that level. And, and actually come up with a solution that's going to be able to ad- like deal with these things. I don't think, again, I, I feel like we're looking, we're always looking at things as if this happens, then this happens, right? Like you need tangible, like cause and effect, cause and effect, right? Like, whereas again, like we've said it a bunch of times, so I feel like we're just repeating it, but it's an experience education, yeah. unless you are in it, Mm-hmm. You have no idea because you're looking at it from an outside saying, well, if you do this and we give you this, then we expect everyone mm-hmm. to get their A's and mm-hmm. be doctors and lawyers. But like what I'm trying to do is educate and and have students who are like, you know what? They, they have self-awareness. I'm really good with my hands and I think I'd be an amazing electrician. Mm-hmm. I want my kids to have that self-awareness and that discipline to figure things out i don't want puppets and i'm mm-hmm. i'm tired of that well all you do is teach the curriculum so yeah like, i was gonna say well, part of our um as much as we were going through the re-rise document another document that we've had is that um we are now teachers that are working on empowering modern learners and it's actually a document that the peel board has and part of that empowering modern modern learners is saying okay we need to make put these kids in situations where they are taking charge of their own learning. What do you find exciting? What are the things that you Mm -hmm. want to pursue? You have an understanding of that. Okay, let's go and pursue that. Or like I, like I say in the podcast, okay, let's go research it. Let's go Google it. Let's go find out. Right. So how new is that? I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, I think it was, I think it's 2018. And and, and this is where, you know, I would say my challenges is like, isn't that like a decade too late? everything is a decade (laughs) but this is but it doesn't happen it's not and this is where i go back to the you said we're treating it like a business no but in business it's not a decade too late because the business that was a decade too late is bankrupt okay i i can buy your point there right and so this this is where i go back to this idea that like we don't have the catalyst to tell us hey it's time to do things differently i feel like we have been like teachers have teachers have been yeah this is not working for us um, but there's only so much movement, like you were saying, like that you can get as a government and employee. You, and right? you lack like, the ability to influence or make, you know, cause control. Like you can actually cause change. You, you lack that ability because of the uniformity in the curriculum, the uniformity in the budget for your classroom, you know, where you said, oh, I got to go spend all my own money. That bookshelf versus the government bookshelf, right? Like in essence, how many people, how many teachers, you know, are willing to spend their own money? I'm sure there's a, a, a quite a large number, those that are really passionate, but some of them, they just can't afford it. Yeah, which is fair. fair. And again, goes back to compensation as well. Like some people <laughs> can't afford well, it. Well, it shouldn't. I would say it shouldn't even be an, like the fact that you have to pay for yourself shouldn't even be. I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. Um, and again, that's something that I do out of my own 
Well, it like, also it helps you, you know. to do your job it, exactly. Yeah, like, and so you know you see the value in spending the money, even though it's your own money. Absolutely, and you're bringing yourself into the classroom. Like I want, like just as um, somebody who sits in a cubicle is gonna have pictures of their wife and children <laughs> up in the cubicle to remind them, okay, this is not just eight hours of insanity and typing, but I actually have a family <laughs> that I love and I kind of like coming yeah, yeah. here. It's the same thing in our classroom. We make our classroom as much as we are designing it for our students to stay engaged it is for us as well so we're going to make sure that the pieces of ourselves show up in that classroom so that the students are going through an experience with us the teacher and that's kind of what that whole teachers like us is okay this is how we do it mm -hmm. i'm a, i'm a teacher this is what i do if you are a teacher and you're you're finding that you have a disconnect with your students these may be some things that you might need to start doing, mm -hmm. which is having that conversation, having that experience. And in going through all of the like the cuts and us figuring out how we're going to get to, again, a fair deal, it's um, on part of the government to, no to take notice that you have teachers sitting in this union that are, again, preparing children for society. And whatever facet they are doing that in, but that's what they're doing. They're getting them ready to get out into the real world. Now, are you going to make it so that there is 40 of them on top of each other that are just reciting things over and over again? And then they're all going to end up with A's, B's and C's on the test and nobody's going to care and they're going to move forward. Or are you going to put them in situations where now these students get to explore the things that they enjoyed from they were younger. So when they're in kindergarten and now they can be in a place where they can say, I like you were saying before, I like working with my hands. Mm. I'm going to make sure that I go. I want to be an electrician. I'm going to make sure that I end up in college for this reason and make sure that I'm pursuing something that I like so that again, I don't end up as that person in the cubicle hating coming to work every day. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're really touching you're really touching on what I would, would call um, like you're, you're promoting self-directed learning, mm -hmm. which a lot of time is what you see in what's called the unschooling or, um, you know, Montessori programs. Mm -hmm. And, and the, I would say the problem in my opinion is because of the uniformity, you don't, you, you like you guys are almost going outside the system in order to implement something like that. You almost have to play by the rules and then add, figure out how to add this in. Which, again, to me, goes back to the central planning concept. It goes back to the idea that, you know, I would say, you know, having a curriculum by school or maybe a handful of schools starts to make sense. As we, you know, how many schools are in your school board or, or and how many schools are serviced by your union? You know, I, I, I just challenge that. Why do we even think that's a good idea? Like, it, it, they, there's a goal of trying to achieve economies of scale and, you know, we're leveraging the resources, but we lack the ability to make the decisions on that level to say, you know, and, and I would say probably we also don't want schools competing against each other because you go to that school based on where you live. And, and, you know, the problem with the lack of competition is, you know, you're not forcing schools to continually to strive to be the top of the, the, the class because well they gotta wor you know worry about everybody to some extent at the same time yeah uh guys thank you for coming through um <laughs> uh, yeah it was very helpful very insightful uh if people want to get in touch with you and follow your podcasts uh what are your social media plugs 
Stop. <laughs> so you can follow us on Instagram at Teachers Like Us. Um, our podcast is available wherever podcasts are available. Really, uh, uh, Spotify. I, I saw Spotify. Yeah, link. Spotify. Spotify. Apple Music. Apple Stitcher. Music, Stitcher. Google Podcast. Thank you, Podbean. Um, we each have our own personal teacher Instagrams as well. Um, so mine is complicated. It's a Grazeway, but the A is not. I'll put in the a. show notes. Okay. Yeah. yeah so and mine is I am Andre dot M. Cool. But you can see what our classrooms look like and kind really? of go through. Yeah, I post pictures of my classroom all the time. So if you want to see and what... the Notorious Bookshelf. Yeah, you want to see that <laughs> Notorious <laughs> Bookshelf and what a teacher-funded classroom looks like, then yeah, check that out. That's very personal. Yeah. Wow, I didn't I didn't know. Do all teachers do that? There's no. no, there's a lot of teachers who are now starting to do so so that we have kind of a community online where we are drawing resources from each other. Mm-hmm. But there's still a lot of teachers that are I've I've done things a certain way for a certain amount of time and now I only have enough this amount of time left on the clock. I'm just gonna make sure I keep doing it <laughs> this way. Yeah. Well and, and, and that's where, you know, arguably the seniority stuff hinders the student. But we won't go down that <laughs> further. Yeah, I think we've hashed it out yeah. well enough. Yeah, but th- thank you guys. Thank you guys for uh, your time and Thanks for having your us. insights. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, this, this episode doesn't get you guys in trouble with, with, with your bosses. Well, hopefully, we right. still have a job. <laughs> no, yeah, no, 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 I did all the bashing of the union, so they're good. <laughs> yeah, 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 so that's all right. Yeah, so thank you guys again. No problem. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thanks. Does that make sense?